Well, uh, gratitude is a very important thing, isn't it? I mean, we all kind of know that. Uh, if you have kids, you definitely know that. Every time we go to Publix and uh, you get the little free cookies there, you know, so we walk in the door at Publix, my kids are automatically going, can we get a cookie, can we get a cookie? And then I go, okay, we'll get a cookie if you uh, obey and shop nice. You know, I will go get a cookie. And then when, when the, the guy is pulling out the eight cookies, which is always hilarious to me, I'm like, can I have eight cookies? Huh. You get that like skeptical look at them. I'm like, no, no, you can count them. They're, they're all here. They're mine. And, um, and then uh, he hands the eight cookies. Then what do you say to your kids, right? You say, what do you say? And then they go, thank you. And they are good. Because gratitude is important. <clears throat> gratitude matters. We, we should be thankful. Because when things are given to us, uh, we should have the, uh, the, the politeness to, to be able to say thank you so much. Because gratitude says something to somebody else. It, it says we are, we are happy and grateful that you've done something for us. So, so it is important. But the real power of gratitude is not in that uh, obligation of thanks to people that do little things for you. That, that's good, but that's not the real power of gratitude. The real power of gratitude is experienced when something happens to us that is so far outside of our expectations of what should be. It, it exceeds what we thought someone might do for us. Then there's something born in us that nobody has to say to us, you know, what do, you, what do you say when, when, when one of your children is, is in a, a, a body of water and they're drowning and someone rescues them? You don't have to have someone say to you, what, what do you say? What, what do you say? No, no, because, because you know that something is born in you and, and, and this overflowing reality of, of awe and, and, and thanks and, and gratitude is born in you. This person just risked themselves and they did something for you that, that is unthinkable and it is, has changed everything. When you take that to a, another level, when, when something occurs, some disaster, and, and somebody goes in to rescue someone you love or you, and they lose their life in the middle of you gaining yours, that's a whole nother level, isn't it? You don't have to wonder, I wonder if I'm going to forget about them in the next week. The rest of your life deep inside of you, there is this stirring that you, you tell their story all the time. You, you let people know. You always think of them. And if, if for some reason someone that was a member of their family comes to you and says, could you do me a favor, what is our response? Our response is, if, if, if it is within my capacity, consider it done. We never wonder, I, I wonder if I'm going to serve you because you have done for me something so unthinkable that, that there's, there's nothing, no boundary to what I will not now do for you. This is the real power of gratitude. And, and this is the story of the gospel. This is the intent of God's revelation to us about what he's done and who he is. His intent is to demonstrate to us the magnitude of his mercy, the magnitude of his work for us, the magnitude of the things he has done for us, he is doing for us, and he will do for us. And then in view of that mercy, the, the intent is that we would respond out of a very natural place of deep and, 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 and moving gratitude because when gratitude is at that level, it stirs our souls to want to respond deeply and fully. This is the intent of the gospel. This is the intent of God. I have done it all for you. Now all you do for me is respond to that out of the way I've already created you to respond. This was the theology of Paul. Paul is the guy we're dealing with right now. We're in the book of Acts overall as a big picture. And since we just walked our way through Galatia, we were now in the book of Galatians because this is a letter Paul wrote to the church in Galatia. And so we're dealing with it in its context. And, and so we are traveling with Paul. We've been watching him. We've been experiencing him. We've been watching him wrestle uh, with the gospel on multiple points in his story. We've watched him in Galatia go down to the, the council of Jerusalem, hang out with the apostles 
apostles and with the elders of the Jerusalem church come back to Galatia and we've watched the gospel stirring in him. And so it is, it is important that we say, when it was all said and done, what was Paul's theology? What did the Spirit of God reveal to him about the gospel and how it works in our lives? And the theology we discover in Paul's writings is that the intent of God's message to us, the gospel, is to stir in us such gratitude for what he's done, make his mercy so big that we have no option but to respond in action and worship and awe. Listen to this. Uh, You've heard these before, but uh, Ephesians chapter 2, Paul is writing this incredible passage about the work of God. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 9, he tells the story basically of we were dead in our sins, we were chasing after our flesh, and yet because of God's great love for us, he came and made us alive in Christ. And then it goes on, it was by his grace, by his mercy, by his work. And in fact, he ends in verse 9 by saying this, this not a result of work so that no one may boast. In other words, everything that was done for you that is being done for you was done by God. And then he says this, listen to this. Verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Do you hear that language? He has done all of this for you Because he's already preparing you and I to step into the story he's written for us in the works he has created for us to do. This is is the way it plays out. You discover the mercies of God. It stirs in you something deep and full. And you respond out of that stirring and give yourself to the story of God. This is how it works. Romans chapter 12 Paul actually puts this directly in like a statement. Romans chapter 12, verse one. I appeal to you brothers, therefore brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, this is not I'm appealing to you uh, for God's mercy. It's the way I'm gonna appeal to you now for the the thing I'm gonna ask of you, I'm appealing to you by the mercies of God. In other words, it's the mercies of God I'm using as the appeal. You with me? Another translation says, therefore, in view of God's mercy. So what Paul is saying, I'm about to write an entire chapter here on calling you into some very big things, but the way I'm calling you into them is not by guilting you, not by saying, you better do it. He's saying, no, 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 the means to live the life I'm about to write is an appeal from the mercy of God. When you see the mercies of God, when you see the magnitude of the gospel in what it's done, in what it's doing, in what it will do, then this will be child's play for you. You will do this naturally out of the place that has been stirred in you. So he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. See, the the theology of Paul was the bigger the gospel reality is discovered in your life, the more that stirring will reveal in you what God has done and you will respond in kind with worship. So what is the enemy trying to undo? What is he trying to do in you and me? He's trying to make the gospel smaller, always. Trying to make God smaller, God's mercy smaller, God's work smaller, God's God's love smaller, the gospel smaller. That's what he's doing. See, you know what you and I think? Let's just be honest for a second. We think the enemy's trying to make you behave badly. I mean, just be honest. Isn't that what you think he's doing? See, you're behaving well, and then he tempts you with stuff to say, don't behave well, behave badly. Then you go behave badly, then he wins. Or if you behave well, then you win, or God wins, right? So the enemy's actually running around trying to make you and I behave badly. I've got news for you. He doesn't care if you behave badly or if you behave really well. He doesn't care. 
He, he, it, it makes no difference to him if you are behaving really well or really badly. What, he, what matters to him is why you are behaving well or why you are behaving badly. If you are behaving really well because you feel a, a deep obligation to earn God's love or to make sure that others look at you the right way or to make sure God keeps blessing you, great, he'll leave you alone, doesn't care. Because you are behaving well, not out of a response of worship, but out of a self-righteousness, which works great for him. Because in self-righteousness, the gospel is small. Nobody responds out of, out of gratitude and, and worship. You respond out of guilt and shame, and, and you respond out of obligation. And we were obligated to the law, not to Christ. We were slaves to sin and obligated to the law. Now he says you are slaves to righteousness. And slaves is not like a thing you're obligated to. You just are. You're stuck with it. You're slaves to freedom and you are free in Christ. And so the enemy is trying to diminish the gospel. And how does the enemy diminish the gospel in our lives? It's simple. The second he can convince you and I that some work of God that was done for you, in you, by God, was actually done by you, the gospel gets smaller. The mercies of God diminishes. You see, if he can convince you that you played a big part or a little part in the work that the scripture reveals is a work of God, then suddenly the gospel is no longer as big as you thought it was. The mercy no longer is powerful because frankly it was up to you, you did it. So if he can convince us in order to receive the salvation that God is bringing, you got to figure out in your head to believe right. And, and when you believe right, when you become convinced, when you start seeking Jesus, when you start pursuing him, then you will compel him to rescue you. You see, the gospel just got smaller. It moved from while you were dead, an enemy of God, and hated him and wanted nothing to do with him, he came and got you. That's different. That's different than when you figured it out and, and someone preached the gospel to you and you went, wow, yes, I'm going to choose to believe that because it now finally makes sense to me. Then God went, oh, I'm so moved by your incredible belief, I'm coming to rescue you. That's how he does it. So he either convinces us you have to do X, Y, and Z in order to receive the Messiah, the gospel, the reality of rescue. Or if he can't do that, if you come to Jesus and you're like, oh my gosh, he rescued me. It's unbelievable. I'm so moved. Then he, he, he pulls this one. Now that he's rescued you, you need to do X, Y, and Z to keep him happy. Now, all of us, right when we hear that, we're like, yeah, that, that sounds weird. But we all play on that playing field, don't we? We all secretly believe, all of us in some small way, once we're rescued, there's a certain set of behaviors that, that pleases God, makes him happy, and then he's pleased with us. And there's another set of behaviors that when we behave that way, it, it ticks God off and he's unhappy, and he's unhappy with us. Because our only context for relational reality is in the context of human relationships. So when my kids behave well, daddy is happy. When my kids behave badly, dad is disappointed. But you see, that's because dad is a human and dad has a conditional love. I wish I had an unconditional love, but I don't. My love is conditional. I'm working toward unconditional love, but my feelings betray me, right? I feel mad. And so my love is, uncondition uh, is conditional. My wife, my love is conditional toward her. It bugs me to death that it is, but it is. I know it. I feel it. You behave properly, I love you. You behave badly, I'm not sure I want to be with you. <laughs> but God's love is not conditional. It is declared as unconditional and everlasting. And so the irony is that after we come to Jesus and he has rescued us by his mercy, his grace, and his great love, we think we're supposed to live a certain way and behave a certain way and do certain things in order to become more like Jesus so that we can show him that we are worthy of what he's already done for us. And this is a way that the enemy diminishes the gospel. Because the, the scriptures declare this work of sanctification, that's the technical theological term for, for the being made perfect or uh, the process of becoming like Jesus, this term, we think this is our work. This is how we think. 
Jesus does the rescuing up front because we were dead in our sin. And then Jesus uh, holds our salvation in the future. So that's, that's uh, placed well. So my future redeemed is a work of God. And my past soul rescued is a work of God. But the current restoring of my identity is a work of me. See, I work hard to live righteously so that God can see that because when he rescued me, it was, it was, a, it was a good decision. And so we, we have language like this. Yeah, you, you know, you know I just, we've just gone through this multiple times and I, I feel like God's trying to teach me a lesson that I'm just not learning. So he's gonna keep doing this to me until I learn my lesson. We've all said that, haven't we? But do you see what that really says? God is treating me a certain way until I figure it out. And when I figure it out, then he'll, he'll let loose a little bit. Or, oh my gosh, I've just been trying to figure out what sin in my life is present that I don't know about it because things are not going well in my life. So God must be poking at me going, you're a sinner, get it right. Right? I mean, don't we all feel that way to a certain extent? Do you feel like God delights over you in this very moment? That he is pleased with you and he looks at you and just goes, I'm so, I, mean, I love you. And you go, well, yeah, this week was a good week. <laughs> well, what about this week was a bad week? Well, he's not as pleased. I mean, he might still be pleased like theoretically because I'm in Christ, but he's not as pleased. This is humanity. This is not divinity. The scripture says that God loves us all the time. He loves us with an everlasting love. This is what he talks about. Peter and Paul, both characters in this current story we're in, and both wrestling with the gospel in Galatia and in Jerusalem during this time when the question was, do you need to do X, Y, and Z in order to get the gospel? So do you need to live by the law, live by the sacrifices, live by circumcision? In other words, do you need to get Jesus through the law? That was the one question. And they wrestled with that and their conclusion was what? No, Jesus doesn't come through the law. Jesus transcends the law, fulfills the law, and you get Jesus as Savior because the law can't save anyone, right? Then the question was, once you get Jesus, should you continue to live by the law? And they wrestled with that, and their conclusion was, not that law. By righteousness, yes, but not obligated to the law. We live in freedom as we have a set of righteousness, but it is no longer the obligation, it is the response. This was the conclusion. So Peter and Paul, writing later on, what was their continued conclusion about how the process of sanctification works? In other words, is it a work of God to rescue you and to redeem your future, but your work to get it right in between? Or is it a work of God to rescue you? A work of God to make you perfect along the way and a work of God to keep your future? Is it a work of God across the board? Are you guaranteed to progressively grow in righteousness because God promises? Here's what Peter wrote, okay? First uh, Peter chapter one. This is the letter Peter's writing. It's the first one, so they creatively called it First Peter. And in chapter one, this is what he says. He's greeting, uh, right off the bat, first letter he writes, he's greeting the people, and this is how he greets them, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 1, page five, uh, 656, if you're interested. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, he starts, and he says this, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, and then he goes through several areas, including Galatia, according, listen now, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, so you are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Did you hear that? Here's Peter's take as he introduces his first letter. To all of you that belong to Jesus. You belong to Jesus because God already determined that story. And he determined that story so that your sanctification may take place by the Spirit. 
for obedience to Jesus. Wouldn't it make more sense to say, to those elect by the foreknowledge of God, listen now, in obedience to Christ for sanctification. Wouldn't that make more sense? Since you're obeying Jesus, you're becoming more sanctified. But that's not how Peter writes it. He, he flips those two. He says, sanctification by the Spirit for obedience to Christ. Do you see that he removes us from the equation? The Spirit of God is going to sanctify you so that what? So that what? So that your life will be a life of obedience to Christ. He doesn't say, so you better obey Christ. He says, no, no, I'm already doing a work in you that will result in an outward expression of obedience to Christ that will demonstrate to the world uh, the realities of the redemption of Christ. This is how it works. This was Paul's take on it. Uh, uh, Paul, uh, I mean, this was Peter's take on it. Listen to Paul. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, and I love this. I mean, he writes with such absolute certainty in this. Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Listen to what it says here. So in Philippians chapter 1, I'll start in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my, for you all, making my prayers with joy. So he's so excited about the Philippians. And look at this. Look what he says. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I, verse 6, and I am sure of this. <laughs> oh, that's big. Paul, I'm sure of this. What I'm about to say, dead certain. Absolute. Here it is. For I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ as long as you obey. Now, I added the last three words. That was my trick to you. <laughs> See, it doesn't say that. See, you'd think it would say that, but it doesn't say that. It simply ends with, uh, I, I am sure of this, that he will bring to completion the work that he began in you on the day of Christ Jesus. End of sentence, period. You are not in the sentence. I am not in the sentence. I am a recipient of this sentence. And so he says, I want you to know I'm sure that God will finish in you what he began. This was the theology of Paul and Peter. And they both knew that the second the enemy can convince you and I that our rescued soul is a work of our own and Jesus, or our continued sanctification, our continued being made righteous is a work of mine and Jesus, or my future salvation is a work of mine and Jesus. If I get it right in what I believe, I get it right in the way I behave, then I will get to keep my salvation. As soon as we believe that, then the gospel diminishes, the mercy of God is smaller, and then our freedom diminishes, and then the glory of God diminishes, and then the kingdom of God diminishes, and then everything that is good diminishes. And Paul knew that is unacceptable. So when the church in Galatia had some guys come to them and say, listen, 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 in order to get the gospel, you, you gotta first go through the law, Paul was vehemently adamant to step in and say, don't you dare, don't you dare. They are to be cursed if they preach that because it matters to the gospel, to the glory of God. And when those same false teachers came in and said, now that you know Jesus, you need to behave by the law in order to keep God happy, he writes a portion now in this letter to go, let me tell you what I think about that story. And this one, this one he plays a little differently. Turn with me to the book of Galatians in chapter three. Galatians chapter three, page 630 uh, is where we're gonna start. Page 630, Galatians chapter three. Now in Galatians chapter two, if you were here last weekend, you remember that Paul used that incident with Peter to describe to the people in Galatia and to us the remembrance that our justification that is being made right with God was a work of Jesus and Jesus alone right? It was the work of God. We had nothing to do with it. He's already established that foundation again. The Galatians already knew this. So he was just reminding them firmly, remember, you didn't save yourself. You had no part in the saving. Jesus did that for, by his great love for us. That's it, right? Now he launches into this section and he starts verse one, chapter three, verse one. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
Man, that is, that is some language. So just so you know, uh, you're talking to the church that you've discipled and you launched this way in a letter that you've written to them. You fools, you fools, what foolishness has grabbed a hold of your head? I mean, for real. And then he goes, who has bewitched you? This language was big time language. It would have shocked the church as they read it. Because to use the word bewitched, it was sort of a, a word that is tied usually to magic, to witchcraft, to that kind of stuff. It's kind of like in our cultural context where we have an entire discussion about Halloween and we're, we're just going, whoop, whoop, you know? And everyone's like, I don't know, well, how are you supposed to feel about Halloween? I don't know, is it, is it good, is it bad? Can we even talk about it? You know, it's, it's, it's one of those like, isn't there, isn't there stuff in there that's like, that's like bad that we shouldn't touch? When, when you hear the word bewitched, he's basically saying, what magic came into your church that you're now participating in? Do you see what he's saying? It would be like me getting up and saying to all of you, what witchcraft are you guys involved in? And this is where they throw down the letter on the floor and they go, did, 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 did Paul just accuse us of being involved in magic? Dare he do that? And that was Paul's intent. To say what I'm about to write to you about is so serious it's such a big deal that when you get this wrong, uh, you, 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 may as, you may as well be playing with magic. It is, it, it, it is no part of the gospel. He is saying, who has bewitched you? What magic has captured your mind? This is absolutely anti-God. Now look what he says. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. He throws in a reminder to these guys do you not remember what was stirred in you when you first uh, saw for yourself the realities of Christ's crucifixion? Now we know the, the guys in Galatia weren't there when Christ was crucified. Some may have been, but most of them weren't because Paul went later on to them and preached the gospel. But what Paul is saying is here, was I not with you long enough? Did we not wrestle long enough together that we saw together the magnitude of Christ's crucifixion? It would be like me saying this to you. Did you not watch the passion of the Christ? Did you not? Do you remember what you felt when you were done watching that? Do you remember the tears running down your face? Do you remember the stirrings in your heart? If that's what he's done for me, there is nothing I will not do for him. How long did it take you to forget that? A week? Two weeks? See, that's what he's saying here. Did we not sit together and deal and see and experience the reality of the crucifixion together? Let me ask you only this. You can see how short Paul is being. I don't have a lot to tell you. I was going to ask you one question and, and gear up, buckle up, because this question is going to rock your world, right? Look at this. I love this question. Let me ask you only this, he says to Galatians. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? See, it's an obvious rhetorical question. Well, let, me, let me ask you this. Let me, let me ask you how this went down. When the Spirit of God came and filled you up, when we went through the incredible re receiving of the gospel and the freedom of God and you were filled with the Spirit, was that because you worked well? Is this how God played it? As soon as you Galatians get the law right, I'll give you my Spirit. You can have the Spirit of God. You can have Jesus. You can have salvation as soon as you get this law right. Paul's saying, is that how it went down? Do you guys remember this? It didn't go down that way. If it went down that way, you wouldn't have the spirit right now, would you? Because I'd still be there with you trying to get you to do the law right. And that's never going to happen. So when you received the spirit of God, when you received salvation, did you not receive salvation through the hearing with faith? And Paul will be the one that will regularly articulate, even in this little passage, even the faith that was given us for the hearing of the gospel was an act of mercy from God. The author of Hebrews uh, deeply related uh, to this concept when he said, uh, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, even the faith you thought was yours that you brought to the table was an act of mercy on God's part, authored by God himself in you for God himself. So he says, when, when you received the Spirit, you, you didn't receive the Spirit because of works of the law, because you were getting it right. This was a work of God and God alone. And look what he says. Are you so foolish, and back to the foolishness, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Now that he's put it that way, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? So hold on, what you're telling me is, 
that your rescue of your soul took place by hearing in faith and by faith in Christ so that the Spirit of God entered you. And now that you have the Holy Spirit in you, now the work of becoming righteous is a work of your flesh. How'd that go for you last time? How'd that do for you? I mean, do you not remember how badly it went before you got Jesus? You think now suddenly it's going to go well for you? That now suddenly you're going to please God with the law because you have Jesus? Look, he actually goes on to, to unpack this. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? In other words, did we go through all of the persecution that we faced, dealing with all of the Jewish people and the Gentile people, fighting us on this, uh, on this audacious claim of the gospel? Did we face all of that persecution, wrestle with the gospel so hard, be uh, cast out by our community, all that in vain? Are we just now going to slink back to what they originally told us was true, that we discovered was not? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. I know then, I mean know then, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed um, along with Abraham, the man of faith. See, Paul is laying the foundation here to what he's about to say. He's saying, listen, We came to Jesus by faith. We live in Christ by faith. This is how it works now. We do not live by works of the law. You have been duped into believing you're playing a part in a work that is only God's to do. And it makes God smaller. He says, God knew this in the very beginning. You see, I think we're under this impression sometimes that in the Old Testament, they were saved by the law, then Jesus came, and now in the New Testament, we're saved by Jesus, and we're just the lucky ones because we don't have to live by the law. Those poor folk, they lived by the law and got saved. That is not the gospel. The gospel is that you have always been rescued by Christ alone in past or present. The law was simply a means to do two things. One, to preserve the people of God until their salvation would be revealed in Christ. And two, to reveal to the people of God their deep need for salvation in Christ because of our incapacity to be able to actually do anything in the law that was right. We could do little parts of it. Yay, got something right today. Among the 12 things I got wrong. And and the law was meant to be revealing to us that the law was good, but it was weakened by our sinful nature, so we could not live by it. Now listen to what he says. Now he's gonna actually do this. He's gonna go there. He's just set up, God knew before the Jewish nation was a nation, in Abraham's time, that it would be by faith that the work would be done, by faith that he gives us and authors in us, so that it would not be a work of our own, but a work of his grace of God to us. Now look what he says. Verse 10. For all who rely on the words of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. You know what he just said? You want to do it by the law? Is that how you want your sanctification to play out? Here's the deal. This is how it works. Okay? Either you do it all 100% correct or you get it all wrong. That's how the law works. It is not graded on a scale, folks. I did 62%. You pass, well done. That's our system. God's system works this way. If you're gonna go by the law, then you gotta get everything right every time because that's the obligation of the law. Righteousness is a consequence of getting the law right 100% of the time. So if you wanna do righteousness your way by the law, go for it. Here's here's the end of that. You're gonna be cursed. Okay, no matter how you swing it, you're going to get cursed because the law can't do that. See, he's now, he's now using the law to remind them before we knew Jesus, this is how it played. Now look what he says. Look what he says. Now it is evident, verse 11, that no one is justified that is made right before God by the law. 
for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. If you do the law, it's an all or nothing deal. You can't do a bit of law and a bit of Jesus. That doesn't work that way. Either your faith is in Christ and his righteousness for you because he became cursed so that you would not have to be, or your faith is in the law and your own righteousness, and if that's the case, you better get it all right. So not only your justification being made right with God, but your sanctification being perfected in Christ. If they are works of the law, you better get it right every time. So your faith must be in one or the other. It's an all or nothing deal. And look what he says. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessings of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, he goes into a large section from verse 15 to the end of three in verse, uh, chapter four, verse one through uh, seven about the law, and we're gonna deal with that next week, but I wanna jump to chapter four, verse eight, because he kind of closes this argument out for the Gentiles this way in verse eight, and this is like the, the kicker. This is the nail in the coffin to go, this is what's actually happening with you, and we, we should pay close attention to this little part. He's now shown that it's by faith that we came to be justified uh, by the grace of God, and, and he's now shown that uh, even our sanctification is by placing our faith in Christ's work in us, Christ's promise for us, right? Not our own works. Now look what he says, verse eight of chapter four. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods, okay? So he's talking to the Gentiles now and he's saying, before you came to know God, before you knew Jesus, who did you serve? Well, you served all those other gods that are not gods, right? You you served all those other realities. Now watch what he said. Watch what he says. But now that you have come to know God, and I love how Paul catches this, right? This is Paul all the time reminding us that we are certainly active participants in the story of God, but we are not the producers or authors or creators of that. It is a work of God in us. So he says, now that you know God, that's your active participation. He goes, oh, what, what am I saying? Look, or rather to be known by God. Do you see what he does? Now that you know God, well, or rather that God is knowing you. Because it's, remember, it's a work of God. You, you did not participate in doing the work. You are responding to the work. You know God because he knows you. That's it. Now look what he says. Now that you know God, or rather to be known by God, you can, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. This is how serious Paul's taking this. Here's what he's saying. Before you knew Jesus, you had all these deities you served, these realities you served, and here's how it worked. They told you what they demanded from you. You did it so that they would give you what you want. That's how it works. That's the pagan system, right? The gods out there have demands. You do what they ask, then they bless you. That's how it works. And he's saying, that's how you used to live. Then you came to know Christ and you recognized the gospel makes a wholly different claim. I love you because I love you. I rescued you because I rescued you. I will make you perfect because I'm making you perfect and I will keep what is in heaven for you because I'm keeping it. I love you. All I want you to know is how much I love you so that in response to the discovery of that magnitude of mercy, you would respond out of the natural created uh, thing in you that that births gratitude and you just go, wow, and then you respond in worship, not obligation. This is the claims of the gospel. And Paul is saying, how can you have, living, have lived the life under the slavery of obligation to obligation? You do what we want, then we'll do what you want. You want crops? Sacrifice something to us. You want, you want fertility? Do this. You, you want to be blessed? We'll do it. And you've, you've gravitated back to that, but now you're using Jesus as that deity. Are you out of your mind? This is what Paul is saying. He's saying to them, when you live like that, that you believe if you behave rightly, then God will do things for you rightly. That is a pagan system. No wonder he started with who has bewitched you. See, we underestimate how big this is. We must remember that the gospel's claim is that our justification, that is 
being made right with God is a work of God alone because of his great love. And our sanctification, the ongoing work of being made perfect to be completed, is a work of God alone because of his great mercy. And our glorification, that is that we will be with God forever, is a work of God alone who has done that for us. And as we see the scope of his mercy, we are moved and stirred to respond in worship and all, and that is the inclusion of our actions and our words been given back to him to say, what do you want from me? Not because I have to, but because I get to. Listen now, our obedience does not and should not compel God to love us more. Our obedience does not and should not compel God to love us more. His great love for us should compel us to obey more. We are the responders, not the activators. We do not create God's love. God has said, I love you with an everlasting love. Every day, all the time, God delights over you and me because he rescued us, not because we behave well. So he is always delighted with us. And because he is always delighted with us, we are free to respond in worship and obedience to him. This is what's written, listen to this. Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians chapter five. Listen to how he writes this here. 1 Thessalonians chapter five, uh, he writes these words. 1 Thessalonians chapter five, verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Isn't that amazing? May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Look, he's not done. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely do it. Paul's certainty of your and my sanctification is in the words of Scripture. You will be made perfect if you have been rescued by Christ because this is what he promises to do. This is his work. If you took two lives and this life right here was living uh, because they believed that their life of righteousness would compel God to love them more. And this life was living because God's love for them was so great in their heart and mind that they were compelled to obedience and love. They would look almost identical probably identical. They'd both be living righteous lives uh, captivated by righteousness, except they would be utterly opposed to one another, wouldn't they? This one would be the exhausted life, and this one would be the free life. The exhausted life would be like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, today I, I gotta get it right because otherwise God's gonna be mad at me. And so it's a constant obligation to the works of righteousness to keep God happy so that he will be happy with you so that he might not punish you or, or he might bless you or he just will love you. For some of us, not even blessing or punishment. It's just I, just, I just want God to be happy with me so I will work to do that. That is an exhausted way to live. The free life says this. Whether I pass or fail today, God's love for me is complete. Whether I pass or fail today, God's delight in me is absolute. I am free because he freed me. I stay free because he keeps me free. I will be free because he will free me. I am guaranteed that when this life is over, I will be exactly who he made me to be because he said the work he began in me at justification, he will complete in me at glorification and the work between justification and glorification, he will do for me. Whoa, that's free. Now, considering that, what do I do? Well, I go, I want to follow anyone who would do that for me with no obligation on my part. I want to follow that person. See, this is, this is what Jesus said when he was talking in Matthew. Now let's read the words of Matthew and see how incredible this becomes. Because here's the deal. You see, the reason we don't preach this stuff a lot in church is because we are afraid that you will respond lawlessly. That's what we're afraid of, I'm telling you. See, the easiest way to get you to do the right thing is to guilt you into it. If you do not do the right thing, you will go to hell. Or, okay, that's a little harsh, if you don't do the right thing, God will be super disappointed in you. 
And then he's going to distance himself from you for a while, or he's going to start hammering at you until you get it right. If there's sin in your life that you're, oh man, it's coming. And so then we all live in fear of what God is going to do to us, or what he's not going to do for us, or how he's not going to like us, or not going to be pleased with us. We fear walking into heaven and God going, oh, bad and unfaithful servant. How could you have lived that way? See, we're fe- we fear that. That's the easiest way to get you to respond well. Because if I tell you this, God delights in you. Doesn't matter if you pass or fail today. We're afraid all of you are going to run out the doors and go, yes! Finally free to live the lawless life. Yes! I've always wanted to do those things. Yes! But that is, that is ignoring the reality of Scripture saying the Spirit of God is in you. And he's promising to do a work in you that is, going to, that is going to tie you, enslave you to righteousness and freedom. And this is what Christ is about to tell us. He actually said this on planet earth. He said, listen, once I set you free in the justification, and once I promise that I will do a work in you of sanctification, here are your options to live. Ready? Here are your options. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, Jesus says, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. What is Jesus' yoke? It is the way he lives, the life he lives, the things he commands, the things he tells us to do, the way he tells us to do life. Take upon you my yoke and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, or humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Why on earth would we follow Jesus? Why on earth would we live in obedience to Christ? Why on earth would we do righteousness if the consequences of not doing it is that God continues to delight in us and we still get to be with him forever because he's already rescued our soul? Why? Because the life outside of righteousness is heavy and exhausting and heavy laden. Is that what you want? Is that what I want? Is that, is that what you want? Well, God will still delight in you, but that's going to be a rough ride. It will suck the freedom and life out of you. See, what Jesus says is, I'm not calling you to follow me out of obligation so that I will be compelled to love you more. I'm reminding you of how much I already love you so that you will follow me out of responsive worship. And when you do, what you will discover in the righteous life is a burden that is light and a life that is easy. Not easy in the circumstances, easy on the soul. Easy on the soul. And so we are called to respond. So where do we go from here? What do we do? It's so simple. It's so, so simple. There is, there is no set of obligations that you have to go fulfill. This is it. You ready for this? Here it is. This is what the scripture calls us to. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. What? Yep, that's it. Start there. Every morning when you wake up, start here in some way. Look, okay. He rescued my soul and I did nothing. He is making me perfect. How do I know that? I am confident of this. The good work that he began in you, he will bring to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. That's incredible. Thank you, God. And he has promised that I will be glorified and he will keep me for the future. First Peter chapter one, right after what I read, read the next six verses. It tells you he is keeping you for salvation and keeping your inheritance for you. Whoa! Then set your toothbrush down and go, okay, Renault, how do you respond to that kind of mercy? Where do you go? And then you remind yourself of Jesus' words. My burden is light. My life is easy. Do you want to have a heavy soul today or do you want to have a light soul today? I mean, his delight in you is going to stay no matter what, but which soul do you want to walk through the day with? And then you choose to respond and to participate in the righteousness that he is already affecting in you. So one, preach the gospel to yourself. Two, learn from Jesus. Did you hear him say it? Matthew chapter 11, come learn from me. Be in the word, 
Be in places where others are speaking the gospel into you. Immerse yourself in the gospel. Don't just remind yourself of the gospel, that's step one, but immerse yourself in the gospel. Study it, dig deeper into it. I have spent the last 25 plus, 28 years immersing myself in this. I haven't even scratched the surface. Someone said to me yesterday, when you're done with Revelation, what are you gonna do then? I said, I'm gonna start over again. Because layer one covered 23 years. There's 49 other layers at least I currently know about, but there's probably 500 more I've never even known about. There is no end to how deeply we can immerse ourselves into the gospel. I hear all the time here, it seems like you guys just kind of come back to the same rescue, restoration, redemption thing every week. It's kind of boring. I don't say it's boring, but you know, and I go, yeah, I mean, I can immerse myself in that the rest of my life and I, I won't even touch the surface. There is no end to the depths of the gospel. Immerse yourself in it. Learn, spend time. And then, once you have reminded yourself daily and immersed yourself in the gospel and learned from Jesus, respond in active worship. Respond in active worship. Romans chapter 12. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, present yourselves living sacrifices. May we live righteous lives. May we live righteous lives. Not because we have to, but because we get to. May we respond to God's mercy, not try to solicit his mercy with our righteousness. But may we respond to his mercy with our righteousness. This is the gospel. You are rescued. You are being restored. You will be redeemed. It's all the work of the gospel. Now what do you have to say to that? Go respond in gratitude and obedience. Let's pray. God, thank you for this incredible and wondrous reality in which we live. That the scripture reveals that it is by your great love, while we were yet your enemies, we were chasing after the passions of our flesh, that you came and rescued us. The scripture says, how much more now that you've rescued us, will you not continue to work in us, to complete in us what must be done? And the scripture says, and if you have rescued us and are completing in us what needs to be done, how much more will you not guard our inheritance in the future for us? God, we are so free in you, we hardly know what we're supposed to do and then, then we discover it as the gratitude for your great work, the view of your extraordinary mercy becomes clear to us, inside of us deeply, it is stirred and we begin to sense how you designed us that when we see your mercy, we are moved fully and completely to respond in obedience. May our obedience never be a solicitation of your love, but may it always be a response to your love. May we obey because you love us, not so that you will love us. And may you use us as you see fit mightily in the lives we live. Thank you for our freedom. May we never allow the enemy to steal it from us. And God, when the enemy tries to convince us that either the gospel is too small to rescue us because we are stuck in ways or the gospel isn't enough so we need to do part of the work, may we sniff it out and may we defy it by resting in your love for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.